Hello and welcome to Hustlers for a Cause, the podcast for growth-oriented entrepreneurs and executives who aspire to create positive change in the world. Are you in business for more than just profit? Then like and subscribe today and join our channel to become a hustler for a cause. Hello and welcome to Hustlers for a Cause. Today we are honored to have with us special guest, Dr. Dawn Carpenter. Hey, Sean, how are you? I'm allowed to say hi now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, Dr. Dawn, I know you're the host of the What Does It Profit podcast. And in that podcast, you investigate the social and moral value of business. And I know a little bit more about your background that really you're researching the nature of work and the responsibilities of wealth. You have a background in finance starting almost 20 years back. You've been a senior executive at JP Morgan at PNC Bank. Your real purpose, it sounds like, is determining if capitalism can be a force for good in the world. I've got big life questions. That's just one of them. So thanks so much for coming on the show. And I'd love to just know a little bit more about you and your background. Well, I mean, you gave an interesting place to start. I started out life as an investment banker. I spent a couple decades in And I got to a place where I said, you know, what am I doing with my life? Not because I was disaffected in some way, but because I wanted to get in even deeper. I'm a voracious reader. So I have three master's degrees. And at this time, I was making this decision, like, what am I doing at this point in time and space? I said, you know, I want to answer some big questions. And I had this pivotal moment. I'm sure we all have them in our lives where something happens that shocks you into maybe looking at things in a different way. And my shock experience came in the elevator at the headquarters of JP Morgan in New York. I was coming into my office. I had just met President Clinton the night before. This is a small event and I'd never met him before. Interesting guy. So I get in the elevator and the person with me is uh, Jamie Dimon. We're the only ones in the elevator, which is very unusual. I mean, the six elevator banks in the building and this hustle and bustle going around in a place like that. And I said to myself, you know, this is my moment. And my moment was when you get to be a certain level within the bank, everyone has a Jamie Dimon story, right? We've bumped into him here or it's almost like urban legend. So here I am in the elevator with Jamie Dimon and I had just met Bill Clinton the night before. So he's going up to 50, I'm going to 49 and I'm like, what do I do with this time? And so I thought on my feet, like every good entrepreneur, right? Seize your moment. And so I said, you know, I met a friend of yours last night. And he looks at me like, what the hell are you talking about? And I said, I met Bill Clinton because I knew that politically, you know, they were friendly. And now that I think about it all these years later, I'm like, wow, that sounded really, you know, not so right um, that I had met Bill Clinton the night before. But anyway, (laughs) he didn't make that connection. I guess neither did I at the time, but I told him about the circumstances of how we met and it was a client event and so forth. And I got off the elevator and I went back to my desk and I'm like, okay, what do I do with this experience? I mean, there was nothing unusual about it. It was very innocent. I sent him an email and I said, here's the link to the event that I was in that we were doing a movie screening. So I sent him the trailer of the movie. And the point of this whole story is that he sent me an email back within 15 minutes. I'm like, wait a minute, what is the master of finance doing sending me an email based upon a movie trailer? I'm like, This makes no sense. But what was important to me was 
and what was so pivotal was that it was the recognition that this guy is just a regular guy. Um, and it demystified this whole CEO thing for me. And it was a moment of reflection. And I'm like, what am I doing with my life? Is this what I'm called to do? And I love being a banker. I'm a deal junkie. Um, I get um, a lot of satisfaction about the storytelling aspect of being a banker, which we'll get into when we talk more about the podcast. But that was my moment. And I said, it's time for me to make a change. And that's how I got really on the path towards doing what I'm doing now. So I left, thought I was going to buy a bank. I wanted to do community development banking and uh, work in marginalized communities, but it was right after the financial crisis in 2008, a few years after, and the regulators just had a lot of other things to do in cleaning up troubled banks. And it just wasn't the right time to do what I wanted to do. So I had the freedom to think big. And so that's what I did. I said, okay, this is my time in life. So I'm going to answer some big questions. And for me to answer those big questions required a lot more learning. And so I went to Georgetown University and got an interdisciplinary doctorate, functionally what we think of in ethics. And so I was studying the nature of work and the responsibilities of wealth. And so that's what spawned my first podcast. We ran for two seasons. Then I finally finished that dissertation and launched this new show with a lot of help from more professional audio folks than I had on my first gig. I saw a little bit of your thesis. So it sounded like it was all based around this concept of contributive justice. That's right. So you want to talk contributive justice? Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit? Oh, sure. Well, I was studying this question of the nature of work and the responsibilities of wealth from a certain lens or certain context, because that's an enormous question. There's so many different ways to look at that. Uh, We're all in the world of business and work and investments and all of that our job or our work means something. The wealth that's generated by that means something. But I was looking at work and wealth in a much broader context. So work to me meant all our action in the world, everything we do. I mean, think about, you know, the care that you offer a neighbor or that's technically work, but we don't really use that kind of vocabulary. I was looking at it from a theological lens. Um, That's how I was thinking about it. And same thing with wealth. You know, wealth is the money that we have in our bank accounts or in our pockets, but it's also, you know, spiritual wealth. It's all those values that make us who we are. You know, all the virtuous things that we do are, you know, aspects of our human wealth. You asked about contributive justice. So when you think about all of these things, in my discipline, we always try to distill it into more practical question. What is the human value at stake in the truth claim that you're working on? So for me, I thought, oh my gosh, all these human values around work and wealth, which one was I going to pick that was going to help me explain this? And the value that I picked was contribution. And the whole concept of justice, it's this enormous concept. Here people talk now about economic justice or social justice. So think about the concept of justice as being multifaceted. So if I take this human value, and justice is just what we owe each other as a matter of duty. So Mm -hmm. if you think about contribution in that context, I thought, well, heck, that's in, in my mind, it was very clear. It's everyone as a human person has kind of two dimensions of contributive justice. There's the affirmative dimension that says we have the right to be able to contribute to the work in the world. But think about all the ways we are inhibited from doing that. We don't live in a safe community. We don't have adequate education or clean air, clean water, all the things that 
make it problematic to be the best version of ourselves. Those are contributive injustices. But we also have the duty because of that to make a contribution. So think about all the ways that we may miss out on opportunities to offer ourselves to the world, either in our personal relationships or in being better husbands and wives and employees and all of those things. And so that's the work side, but the wealth side really is what do we do with the fruits of all of that? So the fruits are material fruits, but also the spiritual fruits. What do we do with the fact that I've, one of the virtues that I work on is patience. I'm terrible at it. But when I'm really patient, the dividend of that can be tremendous to the people I'm being patient to. That's the kind of stuff that I work on in contributive justice theory. Wow. This makes me think so much. So I guess a question for you too, like, does justice fundamentally mean we need to have the same values? And is that like part of our problem that we're even like looking at in the world today? Or um, can we have justice without shared values? Oh, that's a deep question. Well, I think what I would say in answering that is that we are all different and we all have one of the most fundamental things in common is um, an inherent dignity. So I think it diminishes our dignity if we tell other people what they should value. Pick the value that you like and that works for you, and that's your contribution. Well, and you spoke a little bit too about community development banking. Yeah. Is that just banking for like the local government or like what is, yeah, how does no, that No, actually that's, I'm glad you asked that question because the mm -hmm. name isn't all that obvious. It has an element of what you're describing there. In finance, we have a lot of acronyms, CDFI, Community okay. Development Financial Institutions. CDFIs were created during the Clinton administration. Um, there was the actually the legislation that was enacted to create the Community Development Fund at the U.S. Treasury Department, but it's a special designation of a financial entity. It could be a bank, could be a credit union, could be a loan fund, but the commonality is that they commit to doing a certain percentage of their business in low and moderate income communities. So they, by design, are meant to work in these marginalized communities or disinvested communities and their benefits, capitalization-related tools that the, the Treasury Department offers, these specialty kind of banks for taking on more risk and so forth. So mm -hmm. it's a fantastic program, just had a big anniversary. President Clinton came and celebrated it. And But there's a whole industry of financial people who work in this space. And I think they're real heroes. We had Lisa Menza, who's the head of the Opportunity Finance Network on our show. I called the episode Financial First Responders. So that's really <laughs> what they do. Nice. It seems like even your work back when you were in finance was focused on like the nonprofit space too. Was that like on purpose or was that just a function of where you started and how your career grew? Well, that's a good question. It's because I'm a hustler, right? That's the name of your show, Hustlers <laughs> for a Cause. Yep. And really that's how it happened for me in a sense. I finished school very quickly. I was in maybe 21, 22 when I finished my first master's degree and I had it in my mind that I was going to be a banker. So I went off and made that happen. And when you're a baby banker, you basically do everyone's scut work. And I had a really great boss. And so basically I finagled a way to find a niche for myself very quickly because I didn't want to carry 
is most people who start as baby bankers don't already have at least one graduate degree. So I figured, okay, even though I'm super young, uh, I'm going to do this anyway. And basically what happened in the way it all worked out was that there was a guy who was a banker in my firm who left to be the CFO of IMAX, the movie company. And he left, and this is going to date me. I don't even know if your listeners will know what this is, but <laughs> left his Rolodex. It was this probably 80 pound metal thing that twisted yep. round and round. It had business cards in it. So I sat down one day and I said, I'm going to just start calling through the list because he was trying to develop a practice and got really frustrated, which is, I don't know his real reasons for leaving, but I suspect you know frustration didn't help. But to try to build a new banking practice bringing social purpose companies, which in those days were generally in the market were expressed as nonprofits of one type or another to the capital market. So he was getting frustrated because the traders are like, why are, my, are you asking me to sell 30-year bonds for an entity that calls themselves nonprofit? Well, he got frustrated, left, and I took on the cause. And so it was wonderful for my career because there was one remarkable client who said yes. So my very first client, and I think I'd been in the door less than six months, and I'm in my early 20s. I happened to get mysteriously out of this Rolodex, the card of a woman named Marion Wright Edelman, and she is an icon. She was involved in the civil rights era and, you know, John Lewis times all the way through. I found through the grapevine that they were looking at refinancing their headquarters in Washington. And so I called Marion up and I said, you know, this is, it wasn't Dr. Don then. I said, this is baby Don. <laughs> you know, I heard that you need, you know, financing. And she said, yeah, come and see me. And I about dropped my jaw. Wow. I'm like, really? I mean, talk about hustlers. I made a lot of calls before I got come and see me. And I did. And it turned out the reason why she saw me, I found this out later, was that she had her personal money being invested in our firm. And I didn't know. And wow. so I had an immediate credibility with her because of the firm. And she said, how are you going to help me? And I went through that process. And one of the things I'll tell you is that when we were doing bonds in those days, because we were in the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., in those days, these type of bonds have to have public approval. So you have to go through a public hearing process. And in those days, D.C. didn't control its own finances. Congress controlled its own finances. So oh, wow. we had a control board. So you actually had to go to the control board and the city council. So I'm trying to prep her. So here I am, this basically functionally a teenager telling this <laughs> icon, you know, how to interact with political people. And you know, I was so frustrated. I was in her office and she's running around the office, multitasking. And I'm like, do you want me just to wait? You know, she's like, oh no, I'm a mom. You know, I do more than one thing at a time. And I just totally didn't understand her. But now all these years later, I so get it. But what happened when we went to that hearing was that we walked in and it was like a family reunion. All these people had worked in the civil rights movement together and our request was passed right away. And that was really the launch point of my career. And so I just start, you start with one name and you build on it, build on it. And then Sean, my, my bank was bought. <laughs> oh man, I was on a roll. And there was a <laughs> lot of consolidation in the early nineties in the investment banking world. And so yep. my career moved on from there. You know, it's been um, a wonderful career. I still serve as an advisor to some investment committees of very large organizations. I help manage the endowment for the largest uh, professional organization in the microbiology industry. So you can imagine in COVID wow. to make sure that their resources are adequately advised and prudently invested. The big question that you ask in your podcast 
that you explore is around capitalism, right? And if capitalism is to blame for environmental, political, economic, or other challenges. So I'd love to get your take on that. What's your research and your findings so far? And how would you share that? I don't think I would ever ask a guest that question because the kinds of people we have on our show probably wouldn't want to be honest in a recorded yep. session. Um, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> what we do instead is we frame it a little bit differently. How does that work or your work profit? How does it profit the common good, general yep. humanity? And so that's how we ask that question. So I'm not going to have the CEO of, you know, a petrochemical company on our course, show right. to say, yeah. yeah. So it's like, oh, tell me how, <laughs> you know, the oil industry, you know, benefits the world. Um, you know, there's probably yeah. an answer. I'm sure the communications mm -hmm. department at these big companies a, have yeah, an answer. You know, I've answer, seen some, yeah. some of those commercials, but I don't buy it. <laughs> the reason why I ask, right, is like, when I think about it, I think of like technology itself isn't necessarily evil, but you can use the same technology in different ways. Right. And so like that makes me think then, too, well, then like then it comes down to and this is probably because I like I have a software engineering background. Right. So now if I look at it that way, technology is a system and systems have rules. Right. So is it the systems rules that we could go into? Like, do you feel like there are specific ones we could dive into and say, well, if we could just tackle these specific elements that would repeatedly solve, you know, like all the layers of the onion out? Or is it something even more than that? Oh, Sean, I think if it was that easy, I wouldn't have a podcast. Um, <laughs> and so, but what I'll tell you is that mm -hmm. um, just as an example, next week on our show, I have a guy named JC DeSwan. JC wrote a really great book about thinking about ethics in a conflicted industry. So he's yep. um, a hedge fund guy. He ran a huge book of business in Southeast Asia. Uh, he's French. And then he came um, to the United States and now he's on the faculty at Princeton teaching mm -hmm. ethics and, you know, writing his book and, you know, grooming the next generation of people that are going to shipped off to Wall Street we had a conversation about Robin Hood and GameStop. And yeah. so there was a lot to say about that. I was that. gonna ask you about it today. And I was like, being in finance, people probably ask you this question all the time. So I wasn't gonna go there, but yeah. But I mean, we <laughs> talked about it from all perspectives. I think he gave a fair answer. In, okay. And also a responsible answer. Part of it started off like, you go guys, you, you've, you've gamed the system. Yeah. But in the end, we kind of figured out you didn't game it very well. Because if really what you were trying to do is inflict harm on the hedge fund guys, they can withstand whatever kind of little shocks you're going to do. You're going to get some headlines, but they're going to go on keeping doing what they're doing. It mm -hmm. sheds you know, some sunshine on some inherently flawed pieces of the way we do finance. Um, that is for sure. I mean, I understand Congress is going to do some hearings. And so it's going to prompt you know, people to start talking about those things. So maybe it is that they achieved the goal that they wanted to achieve. But JC's response, I thought was brilliant. It's like, if you want to hurt the industry, just go buy, you know, low cost index funds. You're yeah. not going to have the same kind of risk that you have in day trading, you know, and then it cuts out, you know, the commissions, you know, from Wall Street. It's like, if everybody just invested in indexes, you know, these people would go away. That's never going to happen. But, you know, his point was don't manipulate the markets because when our markets are unsafe, that's bad for the United States. The yeah. world looks to us because we have stable, mature, generally speaking, well-functioning markets. 
So what about like the other side of it, like hedge funds too, right? At some level can also manipulate markets, right? Like I know there was one example, I can't remember what. Um, what oh, Sean, there are a lot right? of examples. There's many, yeah. yeah, yeah oh right? yeah. Like, like owning the, yeah, yeah. enough of the aluminum supply so that I can hyperinflate the cost of aluminum just so that I can invest back into it so I can make tons, right? Or even like, yeah, high frequency trading, right? Like that whole thing is- uh, Let me tell you a story though, because this okay. this will help give you a sense of how we think about it. In the first season of our show, What Does It Profit? I had as a guest, uh, Fami Quidir. And if any of your listeners are familiar with the Netflix series, Dirty Money, Fami was featured on Dirty Money related to a pharmaceutical company called Valiant. And that talk about short selling and examples. Fami has earned herself the nickname the assassin. So she's this dynamo, you know, millennial. And what she did was, and she made her mark in Valiant. It was a, you know, I don't know if you know the story about Valiant. They're a company that basically had exponential growth, but it was not in a healthy and sustainable way. And she figured out the secret sauce of what was going on. And so she started shorting it. And she was going against some of the biggest players. I mean, Pershing Square, I mean, some of the biggest funds out there. And she came out on that. So Netflix did a whole thing about her. Well, yep. fast forward after Netflix and before she gets to me, she's um, shorting a stock in, um, this is you know some of the hedging strategies um, that these hedge funds use in Germany. And it's like the German equivalent of Apple. I mean, I mean, they're not in the same industry, but it's, you know, a high-tech company. It's called Wirecard. Mm -hmm. And Wirecard is the darling of, you know, the German stock exchange. And so the regulators were very protective of Wirecard. Well, it turns out Wirecard is a big, fat money laundering operation. And wow. uh, yeah, so she starts shorting it. And the head of Boffin is their equivalent of our Securities and Exchange Commission. Boffin actually said, "Let we're going to stop short selling on our entire market. And she wrote this treatise. It's like, it's 15 pages that analyzes the purpose of short selling in keeping markets honest. And so the name of my episode was short selling for good. She's very out front about it. She's like, you know, I'm looking for companies that are defrauding people, ripping people off, and that when they're gone, uh, the world is a better place. If you operate from a point of ethics do people that operate unethically have the ability to take advantage of you but that's like a beautiful story to show that it doesn't have to be that way you know oh yeah absolutely coming up later in our season i have an episode with garib Seamus, and i don't know if you guys know who garib Seamus is he's not in the world of finance at all he is the uh, ceo of ace comic-con the um comic book people he has been in that industry for a long long time i don't know if any of your listeners and this is not my thing and i don't know anything about it but he was involved in the professional fighting like and you're like what on earth does this guy have to do with a show about the social and moral value of business well, Garib and I get into a conversation about superheroes. And, you know, there are a lot of social justice lessons that superheroes teach us. 
And I said, okay, Garib, what does that mean in your world of work? And he said, in mm -hmm. everything that I've done, he had created, he's a self-described nerd. You know, he, you know, was ostracized as a young kid. He really liked these uh, comic books and, you know, fast forward, you know, and he ends up creating this newsletter that spawns um, an entire industry. So it started out as, you know, being sold locally in and around the New York City area. And then it becomes, you know, these national, international publications. And then the next thing you know, he's um, buying up these superhero conferences. And the next thing you know, Marvel is coming to him to cast the superheroes uh, in their movies. And so there are some really big future plans uh, for Garib going forward. Mm -hmm. um, but he's, he tells me the thing that's uh, common throughout all of that is he's always trying to build community. So he said in the very beginning, it was about building community, a, a safe place for nerdy people who could get together and not feel nerdy. I feel like that is so much the story of entrepreneurs. And that's kind of what inspired me to start like Hustlers for a Cause was so many times every entrepreneur I've met, especially the ones as they become more successful are they don't start just like, I just want to own a business and I want to like make money, right? They start from this point of like some issue, some big challenge that happened in their lives that they want to help other people and alleviate them from having that same challenge, right? And I think now, especially as you look at over the last year with all of the things that have come up, I think that the push towards entrepreneurship is gonna accelerate dramatically. Plus you have like now this consumer trend of corporate social responsibility and values aligning to the purchases that they make is just going to explode this. Yeah, so I was going to say, Sean, when you're ready to start the um, Social Purpose uh, Podcast Network, uh, you just yeah. let me know. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any like big lessons from history that you feel like we haven't learned yet, but then maybe we should have by now? Yes, that history repeats itself. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'll come ask on that guys again on the next I mean, episode and yeah <laughs> exactly exactly I mean I'm not going to go political on this but a lot of the dynamics that we've seen over the last couple of years you know have showed up in history you know not even just immediate history like World War II but I mean I'm talking ancient history some of these archetype personalities you know have popped in and out of history since you know we've been able to record it so I say read a lot of biographies. Um, I'm a big reader. I, we're not a, a visual podcast, um, but mm -hmm. you know, in my house, I think at least 4,000 books, something like that. They wow. line the walls of all, we live in a historic home that's very narrow. And so um, it's this long, narrow uh, bookshelves on all the floors of the house. Um, so wow. uh, between my husband and me, um, we've, you know, read through pretty much most of them but um so i'm a, a very voracious reader and i'd say uh, study um human types um you can get them in business you can get them in politics you can get them in art and music and in all kinds of places i guess as we come to a close here i would love to know like from all the work you're doing with the podcast and even beyond that if you were going to distill it all down into one big impact that you'd hope to have on the world what do you feel like that would be i just want everyone that ever meets me or listens to me on a podcast or hears me speak or reads something that i write i want them to understand that no matter who they are or what they do their life matters it may not matter 
in the sense that we think about, you know, big flashy legacies, you know, what people are going to say. I remember listening to one of your shows, you had a guy named Lee Chambers on, and he was talking about values. And I think you asked him the similar question, right? And he was talking about, you know, the eulogy. And it's like, what are people going to say about me when I'm gone? And to me, I don't think of it that way. To me, it's like, what is my place in the world going to have done? What have I said? What action have I done? Will it have changed another human being's life? Maybe like my closest relationships, it's been in really big ways. But sometimes it may be that, you know, I helped out someone and went above and beyond or gave someone a voice who didn't feel they had a voice or you know, whatever. I just want there to be, it's like in chaos theory, that's the, the butterfly effect, you know, the butterfly wings, you know, flap and it, you know, causes a uh, monsoon on the other side of the world. You know, mm -hmm. that's what I want to have happen because I'm going to go. People are going to forget that eulogy, even of very famous people. I mean, I look this week, we lost uh, John Sweeney, an icon in the labor movement. We lost uh, countless John Lewis, you know, all of these iconic people and their legacies are going to be around for a long, long time. But when you change the life of a person, they then have the opportunity to change the life of another person. And, you know, I was a banker. I know how fractional banking works. You know, you put in a deposit, it gets leveraged and, you know, you create money out of thin air. I want to create a better world out of thin air. I love that answer. Probably one of my favorites to that question today. I think you have a new book coming out, right? Called Coworkers with God, Mankind's Challenge of Work and Wealth. Well, we're working on it. I don't know if that's going to be the, the title the publisher is ultimately going to uh, work with, but it's going to be about contributive justice theory. And uh, we're getting close to uh, making a, a big announcement. But the idea is to help people understand this, what you've so nicely um, called out in an interview. What is the gist of you know this idea that everyone has an important contribution to make, and that contribution is you know witnessed through their entrepreneurial activity and their their the way they create wealth, whether it's material wealth or spiritual wealth or however you describe it. So uh, stay tuned. So where should people go to stay tuned? Like oh, thank you for asking. Right? We're trying to build, we call it, we use an acronym, uh, WeDip, uh, What Does It Profit? Uh, WeDip mm -hmm. community. Um, so you'll find us hanging out on Twitter and LinkedIn most frequently, but we've got a team now who are working on uh, developing a much more robust social media outreach because we get a lot of really good feedback that way. But I'd say listen to us on your favorite podcast app, um, whatever that happens to be. Um, we've just now started putting our RSS feed out into YouTube, so you can uh, find us there. And then uh, we have, I, we promo most of the time at the end of our show, um, the opportunity to send an audio file to our producers, producers at whatdoesitprofitpodcast.com. And so we're starting to collect um, these audio files and we ask our listeners, um, tell us, you know, why is it important to talk about the social and moral value of business? Uh, we've gotten some good answers. So we're looking forward to probably in season three, start to um, put more of those uh, and have them integrated into the show. Wow, that's awesome. I love it. So for all the hustlers uh, for a cause, you know, if you want to have your 30 seconds of airtime, um, send us an audio file and uh, we'll welcome you into our community too. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been awesome to get the chance to know you and to meet you, Dr. Dawn. And yeah, I'd love to have you back soon. I am always excited to come back and talk to you. I learn something more about myself every time you ask good questions.